Brothers and sisters, if you would please stand. And I invite you to turn in the Bible to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, which you'll find on beginning on page 855. I'm reading from one of the Pew Bibles. We're so grateful for these Pew Bibles. It's uh, a great way for you to know that what I'm about to talk to you about is not something that I've cooked up. It's actually God's Word to us. So uh, take a look, if you would, please, in the Bible at Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for this chance to open the Bible, to reflect together on a a passage of Scripture, Father, that in some ways we've heard so many times before. Many of us in this room have heard it many, many times before. But I pray you'd open our ears and hearts in a new way that we might hear exactly what you want us to hear. Father, that we would not only hear it, but we'd believe it and obey it and rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Please keep the Bible open in front of you. We're going to be jumping around just a little bit at a few passages that... I think we'll shed some light on what we're seeing here in in Luke chapter 1. As you've heard a couple of times already today, this is the uh, second Sunday of Advent. Advent's a wonderful season in the church year. Uh, Not every church keeps Advent. I am very glad we do keep Advent here at Metrocrest because it's a way to prepare for something that we think we already are prepared for or that we don't understand how important it is to be prepared for. It's something we just get so used to. And 
keeping a season every year when we just intentionally, year in, year out, focus on preparing, preparing, preparing. Hope, hope, hope. Well, brothers and sisters, I think that is a great gift. It's a great gift to us and to our kids, to our families, and to the generations that come after us, that we will always be intentional about focusing every year on hope. Uh, hope is sort of the theme of Advent. Uh, it's, it's something that runs through the Bible readings. It runs through the, some of the little ceremonies that we do to remind ourselves of the hope that is ours in Christ. Uh, the, the hope that we have in Jesus is very much at the center of what we're going to be thinking about uh, for a few minutes this morning. In fact, I've, I've called this series of sermons Songs of Hope. Because these passages of the Bible, many of them have literally been turned into songs. They, they are shown in the Bible as songs. That's why they're sometimes indented the way they are. And over the centuries, over the millennia, Christians have literally sung these words. In fact, the passage we're going to look at today, or actually next Sunday, uh, is called the Magnificat. It's an ancient Bible text based on what we're going to look at today, of, of the, the song that comes forth from the Virgin Mary, that has been turned into a song that Christians have sung for millennia. So these are songs, and they're full of hope, meant to give us hope. Uh, God's Word is meant to give us many things. It certainly is meant to give us hope. And this second Sunday of Advent, I want you to leave this room with hope. Uh, Not hope based on me or the PCA or Metrocrest Presbyterian Church, but hope grounded in God, His Word, His Son, His love. So that's what we'll be thinking about this morning. Hope is a big part of it. I mentioned last week, I'll mention again this week, uh, one of my favorite writers, one of your favorite writers, I imagine, is a man named John Piper. I love John Piper's work and Uh, He had something to say about hope, and this is what he wrote. He said, Christian hope is a confidence that something will come to pass because God has promised it will come to pass. So it's not just some sort of vague wishing that something might happen. Christian hope is actually based on a promise, and we hope in his promise. It's not completely fulfilled in front of us at the moment, But we hope in his promise. We trust in his promise. We are confident in his promise. Now, one thing you will notice, especially this year's Advent sermon series, uh, there are a number of characters that come up very often in Advent, a number of Bible characters. Among them are uh, the uh, priest, Zechariah. We looked at him last week. He shows up in the first part of of, uh, Luke chapter 1, and then he shows up again later in the chapter. Uh, Zechariah is a priest, and we saw last week how this old religious professional uh, forgot hope. Um, He was a man that was uh, virtuous. It actually says that uh, he was someone who um, was uh, uh, a good person. He was a person who who sought to live a life in accord with the commandments of God. Uh, He was righteous, Luke chapter 1 verse 6 says, and yet... Luke tells us that Zechariah forgot God's promise in in his day-to-day life in terms of receiving a promise from the Lord via this angel Gabriel. 
So there's Zechariah. There's also uh, Elizabeth, and it's amazing how little Elizabeth shows up in this first section. Uh, They're mostly talking about Elizabeth, um, but Elizabeth actually has a, a very important role to play because Elizabeth, in her old age, miraculously becomes mother to John the Baptist. And I guess John the Baptist is probably one of the couple of characters that most often shows up during Advent, John the Baptist, who came to proclaim Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus. And in that way, John the Baptist is a little bit of a a type for the church. The ministry of the church is always to prepare the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist reminds us of that great hope for which we are to prepare. And above all, there's another person, the last one I'll mention, uh, who we, we meet today, who we all know of, know about. Uh, she is probably one of the most famous people in the entire world, and yet we so often understand her so little. And her name is Mary. Mary. Mary's name comes from the Hebrew Miriam. And uh, Mary is uh, sort of an anglicized version of Maria or uh, which was a Greek form of Miriam. And, and uh, so in the Greek New Testament, it's recorded as uh, Maria. Uh, it may have been that they called her Miriam in the ancient language that they spoke uh, in that part of the world. But uh, we know her today as Mary. And she was um, a woman who figures very in a very central way in this story of hope that we're going to look at. Uh, the name Miriam is a very old name. Uh, the first Miriam that we are told about was actually the sister of uh, Moses and Aaron. If you go all the way back to the second book of the Bible, to Exodus, you discover that uh, Aaron and Moses both had an older sister whose name was Miriam. Uh, In Exodus chapter 2 verse 4, we're told that it's actually Miriam who stands watch over the infant Moses as he's set in the Nile River. Remember that story? And um, Moses' mother was afraid he would be killed by Pharaoh. And so they, they put little Moses in, a, in an ark, a little uh, uh, basket, and set him in the river. And it was Miriam who watched as the daughter of Pharaoh, the one who'd ordered the killing of the children, uh, the daughter of that man saw this little ark among the rushes sent a girl to go get this little ark, brought it, and discovered inside Moses, this little boy, crying. And it grabbed her heart, and she adopted Moses, and she raised him in her home. And uh, Miriam had a role to play. Miriam saw it all. Miriam spoke to the daughter of Pharaoh. It was Miriam who went and got her mother to come and be the nurse to her own son. It's a remarkable story. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, Miriam, we're told, was a prophetess. She actually had the gift of the Holy Spirit in such a way that she she had the role of a prophetess among her people. And uh, we have the song of Miriam. I mentioned the songs of hope. Well, there was a song of hope in Exodus chapter 15, verse 21, where Miriam uh, burst forth in song, a very short song, but one that became very precious To the people of Israel, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And she taught that to God's people, Israel, and they sang that 
right down through the ages. They might well have been singing a version of that in the point of time when Mary is on the scene here in Luke chapter 1. It was a very important song, a very precious song, reminding the people of Israel of God's promises and the hope that they had in the God of the covenant, the God of the Bible. So uh, that's a little bit about her name. Well, here's this girl, Mary. Uh, And it turns out, according to Luke in verses 26 and 27, my first point, Mary was a very ordinary person in many, many ways. Mary was, we read in verse 26, a, verse 27, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. You might know the um, word for virgin. You may not realize you know the Greek word for virgin. Anybody know what the Greek word for virgin is? It's Parthenon. Parthenon. The temple in Athens that we all know about, the Parthenon, was named for the virgin goddess Athena. And the Greek word for virgin, and you can read it in Luke's gospel, was Parthenon. She was a Parthenon. Uh, Parthenon meant partly young woman, but based on what she says here, she was a young woman who was, in fact, a virgin. The word for maiden, young woman, was actually virgin. She was a a very young girl. We don't really know exactly how old she was. We're not told. But the picture is of a very young girl, old enough to be betrothed, of age to be married, but she was very young. And so she's described, and that's really pretty much all we're told. Uh, I I think the the picture we're meant to get is is a picture of ordinariness. Uh, She wasn't in a great and famous city, she was actually, it says in verse 26, in a, in a very unimportant city, Nazareth. It's a little bit of a joke. Nazareth was a town that nothing good came out of. It wasn't a, an important city. It was a, a little tiny place of unimportance, relatively speaking. Nobody thought much of Nazareth. Uh, they've tried to do some archaeological digs at Nazareth, and the, the problem with archaeology in Nazareth is there's not much to dig. It wasn't much of a town. But that's where this Parthenon, this virgin, lived. And the picture is one of just great ordinariness. She's sort of an every woman, in a sense, the way she's shown so far. An ordinary woman, very much like every other woman. Now, one way this is important is, uh, as shown in the Bible, Mary is not at all shown as sinless doesn't dwell on her sin, but there's some significant points in Luke's telling of the gospel where we get glimpses of the ordinariness of Mary that extended to the reality of sin in her life. She, for instance, talks about a God providing a Savior for her. Mary needed a Savior, just like you and I need a Savior. Mary needed a Savior. Uh, some of our Catholic friends are... Think very differently about this. You you might have heard of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with uh, the virgin birth of Jesus. It's a totally different doctrine. The Immaculate Conception teaches that Mary was sinless so that she could birth a sinless Savior. But that's not the picture we get in the Bible. 
As a matter of fact, we're told specifically in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, that at one point in Mary's life with Jesus' brothers, he had brothers, and that's something we're told by all three of the synoptic gospels, Jesus had brothers. Uh, Well, Mark tells us that Mary and her other kids, whatever their specific bloodline was, we're not told a lot about it, but they were there and they went to take Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind. Again, there's not a lot said about it, but the, the picture is that Mary, out of love, no doubt, it wasn't that she was angry at Jesus, but because she was like us, imperfect in her understanding, a person who needed a Savior, she didn't understand what Jesus had come into the world to do. And so here's Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who said she needed a Savior, who tried at one point with Jesus' own brothers to keep him from saving them. It was actually her being what she thought of as a good mother, which meant in that case she was sinning. She, She, like Peter, had resisted Jesus fulfilling the essential task that he was actually born to accomplish. So the the Immaculate Conception is just flat out wrong. It it misses very important points that we learn about Mary and that are important about Mary because the fact she was ordinary is actually part of the importance of her life and story. She was truly ordinary. Now, she was also an ordinary person who was given an extraordinary responsibility. Verses 28 to 31, the first half of verse 31. I mean, this is an amazing story. So amazing, it's recorded in the scriptures. Uh, Look at verse 28. It says, uh, The angel Gabriel came to Mary the virgin and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now just pause for a moment. Imagine this amazing scene. Uh, An ordinary girl. An ordinary girl who's told about this extraordinary responsibility that's being placed on her. It's so extraordinary that an angel has to deliver the message. This angel comes and he he says to this girl, God's about to do something remarkable. Something hinted at in the Old Testament. A, A promise that's hinted at in the Old Testament. All the way back in Genesis. There are these little hints all the way through the Old Testament of promise that God would save his people. He would send his own son as a savior. And so Mary is given this extraordinary responsibility. There are a number of hints at how extraordinary it is. Uh, Not all of them are clear to us, but this word greetings, it actually means rejoice. Uh, this is joyful news. This is wonderful news. doesn't necessarily sound wonderful. 
It sounds confusing, and for a young girl, it might very well have felt terrifying. She was, in fact, frightened. The angel had to reassure her as he had reassured Zechariah, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But the angel brings this word of greetings, rejoice. And then he says this to this, little, to this young woman, this girl. Uh, he says, don't be afraid, Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. A promise in a name. Mary had a name that was significant, Miriam. Well, Jesus also we're told, has a significant name. Of course, it's an Old Testament name. Uh, Most of the characters in Jesus' story, many of them are Jewish names. Well, Jesus is just the Greek form of the name Joshua. And the word Joshua and the word Jesus mean God saves, the Lord saves. What an extraordinary responsibility that she would bear this child. What a remarkable thing. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. That was the announcement given to her. And it contained within it also, thirdly, a unique promise. There was the ordinary person, the extraordinary responsibility. And there is in verse 31b and through verse 37, a unique promise from the Lord. A unique promise from the Lord via this angel. Uh, He says, verse 31b, um, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. That's a unique promise. That's a unique promise. It, It begins with this extraordinary responsibility entrusted to this very ordinary woman, but it it culminates in the realization that what God is getting ready to do in this ordinary person is come into the world himself. And the angel attempts to describe in human terms, he describes in human terms what is unimaginable. It, It defies biology defies physiology and physics. It's this incredible promise that God himself, through the Virgin Mary, was going to come into the creation that he had created. He was entering the world. And this little baby, because of his miraculous birth, because of the promise of the virgin birth of Jesus, Not the Immaculate Conception, but the virgin birth of Jesus. Because of that, according to Luke, people will know that Jesus is the Son of God Himself. God, the Holy One. God, who is the Almighty One. The Most High. That God has, 
through the Virgin Mary come into the world in Christ. That great promise, that great hope, which fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. We saw this morning the theme of today's service is Jesus is not yes and no. Jesus is always yes. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament, all the promises that the prophets had spoken. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is God saving. Jesus is the Lord saving his people. What a unique promise. What an extraordinary promise. And that's part of what we celebrate this Christmas season. That promise that Christ has come into the world to bring this good news that God is keeping his promise and that in Christ, sinners like you and me are invited to put our trust in Jesus and to experience the salvation that Jesus died to bring. His spirit at work within us, drawing us to Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas every year. We celebrate Christmas every year because the birth of Jesus is is the, the... most exciting, important news that finds its fulfillment in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, this Christ event, Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, all of that which is summed up in the church calendar. We have a calendar with a purpose. It's meant to remind us of all those key events in Jesus' life beginning with his birth that we prepare for today. A unique promise. Brothers and sisters, whatever else you do on Christmas, let Jesus' promise, the promise of God, the love of God coming into the world, may that be the center of everything we do at Christmas time and throughout the year. A unique promise entrusted to this very ordinary, very young girl Now, there's an expected response. This this is really important because Zechariah got it wrong. Zechariah got it wrong. In fact, I think part of the reason Luke arranges chapter 1 this way is Zechariah, the religious professional, is presented in stark contrast to Mary, the virgin, ordinary person, young and not particularly well-trained, just an ordinary girl, no doubt heard the promises, but she's not presented as a theologian. She's an ordinary covenant child, a girl. You see, to all that Gabriel communicated to Mary, just as to all that Gabriel communicated to Zechariah, uh, there is an expected response. Mary was expected to submit. Mary was expected to yield herself to what God had said he was going to do. Uh, That's exactly what she does in verse 38, the last verse we'll look at this morning. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary said yes to God's promise. Mary said yes to the hope of Israel. Mary said yes to this great promise of hope 
that had been proclaimed to her and that we read about today. Zechariah forgot that hope. Mary submits to that hope. Mary was given a unique thing to do, something that no one else is asked to do. She was given a unique thing to do, and what she did was unique. No one has ever been expected to submit the way Mary submitted. That was unique. Therefore, she had an angelic messenger explain it to her. But actually what Mary does, while it is unique in some of its specifics, what Mary does is what we're all expected to do. What we just read about it, the affirmation of faith that David read us just a moment ago, led us in thinking about it. Just flip back, if you would, to the uh, bulletin, to the, uh, the confession of faith that we read out loud, the, the um, affirmation of faith on page four. What is the duty which God requires of man? The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. That is, obedience to what God tells us. Obedience to God's promises. Obedience to hope. Submission to the promises of the God who has told us what he's going to do. Obedience to that God. So, while what Mary specifically does is unique, what she does in another sense, is what we're all called to do. We're all called to submit to the will of God as he reveals it to us. Um, I like to study comparative religions, and Islam is one of the great religions of the world. It's the second largest religion in the world. Uh, the word Islam actually means submission. It means submission, and uh, it's based on a distortion. It's based on misunderstanding. It's based, honestly, on lies. I've got a very dear friend, a missionary, and who worked most of his life in Pakistan, and he says that Islam is uh, actually the devil's cleverest trick because he took the idea of submission to God and twisted it around and distorted it and turned it into something horrible. Something so ugly that people get into planes and do all kinds of awful things. Why? Because they thought they were submitting themselves to God. It's a distortion. Well, Islam means, means submission. Israel, the name of God's covenant people, Israel means wrestling with God. Now, Let's be clear, the God of the Bible expects us to yield and to submit and to obey. But the difference is, the difference between this one understanding of, of uh, submission, which not only is held by Islam, but it's held by all the haters of Christianity. Their understanding of God is that he's some impersonal force who's outside sort of shouting orders He's not really a person at all. He's a force, impersonal, cold, removed. But the God who calls us to submit to himself in the New Testament as we see him revealed in Christ, as we see exposed in the Old Testament as well, is a God who's in relationship. We can wrestle with our God. Jacob wrestled 
with God. He, he took his questions, he took his uncertainty, and he wrestles with God. And one of the great privileges of Christianity is we submit to God, but we do it within the context of a relationship of love. We, we're, it's like wrestling with our Father who loves us and cares about us. Imagine the perfect father, and he delights in the relationship. He's not looking for cold, passionless submission. He's looking for the submission based on love and trust. That's the submission that we see in Mary. She asks a question. I don't know how this is supposed to work, she says to Gabriel. I'm, I'm a virgin. So she's asking Gabriel, how, how is this going to work? See, there's nothing wrong in saying to, the, to God Almighty, saying to the Lord, how is this going to work? Help me. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, God anticipates it. That's why he sends Gabriel. He doesn't send a UPS note. Or he doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't send it in person. He, he sends his right-hand man who comes in and delivers this unique message to Mary and then engages with her, talks to her. And that's the God who we worship today. That's the God who entered the world in Christ. It's the the God of relationship. It's the God with us. Not cold and impersonal at a distance, reigning over us, but a God who actually comes alongside us and actually in the Holy Spirit comes into us. Just like the Holy Spirit conceived Within Mary, Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, incarnate in the flesh, that same Holy Spirit is at work in you and me, giving life to Christ in us. Helping us to become like Jesus. The same Holy Spirit is at work within us. Teaching us to submit to hope. Submit to God's promises. Submit to the God who loves us so much that he not only came into the world, but was willing to die for the world. That's why it's right we begin every church year by focusing like a laser beam on what Jesus came to do. If we're not clear on what Jesus came to do to fulfill God's promises in love, if we're not clear on that, we're going to get distorted. We're going to wind up confused. So we start out remembering that Jesus came into the world in love. And guess what? He's going to return as judge, as king, revealed to the entire universe. But he comes in love. His message is unchangingly love. Even judgment is a manifestation of God's love. That's the way God is. He's perfect and and he loves perfectly. So this Advent, when we get together in a couple of Sundays and we have the kids running around dressed up as sheep and who who knows what Gwen has planned, we'll we'll see. I know she's already written the script. She and Justin have already written the script. And I've seen a few costumes floating around. So I have an idea what they'll be doing. I imagine you do too. What they're actually going to be doing is acting out this promise. They're reminding all of us of this great promise 
that God loves us so much. He has a plan for us that includes love and that will move us not only to a very happy Christmas, but more importantly still to looking towards the hope of eternity. When Ruth and her sister and all of us who've shed a tear or two or ten, we will be reunited, made complete because God loves us.